Daniel 1. In the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. And the Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand with some of the vessels of the house of God. And he brought them to the land of Shinar, to the house of his God, and placed the vessels in the treasury of his God. Then the king commanded Ashpenaz, his chief eunuch, to bring some of the people of Israel, both of the royal family and of the nobility, used without blemish, of good appearance, and skillful in all wisdom, endowed with knowledge, understanding, learning, and competent to stand in the king's palace and to teach them the literature and language of the Chaldeans. The king assigned them a daily portion of the food that the king ate and of the wine that he drank. They were to be educated for three years, and at the end of that time, they were to stand before the king. Among these were Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah of the tribe of Judah. And the chief of the eunuchs gave them names. Daniel he called Belteshazzar, Hananiah he called Shadrach, Mishael he called Meshach, and Azariah he called Abednego. But Daniel resolved that he would not defile himself with the king's food or with the wine he drank. Therefore he asked the chief of the eunuchs to allow him not to defile himself. And God gave Daniel favor and compassion in the sight of the chief of the eunuchs. And the chief of the eunuchs said to Daniel, I fear my lord the king, who assigned your food and your drink, for why should he see that you were in worse condition than the youths who were of your own age, so you would endanger my head with the king? Then Daniel said to the steward, whom the chief of the eunuchs had assigned over Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, Test your servant for ten days. Let us be giving vegetables to eat and water to drink. Then let our appearance and the appearance of the youths who eat the king's food be observed by you and deal with your servants according to what you've seen. So he listened to them in this manner and tested them for 10 days. At the end of 10 days, it was seen that they were better in appearance and fatter in flesh than all the youths who ate the king's food. So the steward took away their food and the wine they were to drink and gave them vegetables. As for these four youths, God gave them learning and skill in all literature and wisdom, and Daniel had understanding in all visions and dreams. At the end of the time, when the king had commanded that they be brought in, the chief of the eunuchs brought them in before Nebuchadnezzar. And the king spoke with them, and among all of them, none was found, like Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. Therefore, they stood before the king. And in every matter of wisdom and understanding about which the king inquired of them, he found them ten times better than all the magicians and enchanters that were in all his kingdom. And Daniel was there until the first year of King Cyrus. Happy Labor Day to you guys. It is good. Uh, to be together on this Labor Day weekend. Uh, Before we dive in here to Daniel chapter 1, I want to remind you and encourage you 
Uh, about next Sunday, next Sunday, uh, we are going to have for the first time ever GBC 101 following our gathering. And so uh, we're going to be hosting uh, a dinner for you. If you're interested in learning more about uh, our church family, I just want to encourage you to come and be a part of that. If you've been kind of dipping your toe in the water of GBC for a while and you are getting to the point where you're like, I think I want to make GBC my church home uh, or I'm interested in knowing more, this is designed for you to come to. Uh, I want to get to know you better. I know other staff and pastors would love to get to know you uh, and just really have a time where we can share about who we are as a church, what we believe, what our ministry philosophy is answer and dialogue with your questions. Uh, it's just a really important time. And so if you're also getting to the point where you're like, yeah, I think I really do want to join GBC, um, this is a really good and necessary step uh, to take. And so uh, please uh, just, you can register for this event on the website um, under events, and uh, that helps us know how much food to provide. So um, just keep in mind, this is next Sunday. I'd love to see you at it. Um, if you would, if you haven't yet, um, open your Bibles to Daniel chapter 1. Um, if you don't have a Bible, we have some new Bibles that we just bought, some ESV Bibles, and they're on the back table or in the entryway. You can feel free to grab one of those and use that. Or if you don't have a Bible, I'd love for you to take that home with you and, and put it to good use. Uh, if you are unsure where Daniel is uh, and you're nervously kind of flipping around thinking everyone's like, man, you're a bad Christian, you don't know who Daniel is, don't worry. Everyone else is thinking the same thing, right? This is not a book that most of us go to on a daily basis, so feel free to use your table of contents. Um, or you can also just look for the books of Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, and you're right there, right? You're right after Ezekiel is where Daniel is. Uh, it is, it is hard um, being different, isn't it? Uh, it's not very easy uh, standing out. Uh, you and I, we live in uh, one of the most beautiful places uh, that you could find. Uh, when we have the Columbia River, we have waterfalls. We have epic mountains that are really volcanoes, right, that we all forget about. Uh, they are, we have the scenic coast. We have all four climates here in Oregon. We have very interesting culture. We have opportunity. We have great food, wonderful coffee, not so horrible sports, right? But we also live in what is deemed to be one of the most irreligious regions and even states in our country. Uh, we are second only to the New England states. Oregon consistently ranks in the top 10 of places that are the least religious. Uh, a recent Pew study in 2017 found that in Oregon, less than 30% of people say that they regularly attend religious services. So not just Christian services, not evangelical Christian services, but just religious services. So think of any religion in the world, right? And about seven out of 10 people, if you were to ask them, where do you regularly attend a religious service? They would say to you, I don't. I don't go anywhere. Right? So that's only three out of 10 people. That's, that's a lot. Right? Oregon also is the sixth highest state with the largest population of nuns. You might call them even atheists, but people, if you were to ask them, do you believe in God? They would just say, I don't believe in anything. Right, so 44% of people in our state claim this. I mean, that's getting close to basically every other person that you were to pass on the street. If you were to walk by them and say, do you believe in God? They would say, oh, I don't believe in God. I don't believe in anything. Right, and the place that we live has always been this way. We were never really a religious state, right, or a religious region. There's no religious glory days of Oregon or the Pacific Northwest. So when it comes to our faith as Christians, we feel naturally very different, don't we? We feel pushed to the margins. 
Right? The Christian message or the gospel that Jesus is the hope and savior of the world and that we embrace him as our king it is not the center message that we hear on repeat as we go to work or as we go to school or as we interact at the farmer's market or youth sports. Right? To, to be a Christian is to learn then how to live life at the margins, right? not the center. And before we feel bad about this, we really need to stop ourselves and realize that for much of history and for most of the other believers in this world, that has always been the case, that we aren't really unique here in the Pacific Northwest, right? This isn't really bad news. This is just on par news. But even more so, this can be great news in that it seemed to always prove that when the church is pushed to the margins of society, that's where Christians thrive, There are many reasons for this phenomenon. I mean, some are theological and some are actually just pretty practical. One reason why this is usually the case is because Jesus himself has promised that he will build his church and that nothing will stop him from building it. We have this great promise. Jesus is stronger. Jesus is king. He's promised this. Another reason, though, is that God has sovereignly used suffering and persecution of his people to advance his gospel, his kingdom, his message in this world. And so you often see the church thriving in the places where it's persecuted the most. I mean, just think about it. Do you know where the fastest growing church is in the world? It's Iran. Yeah, 1979, there was believed to be only 500 Christians in Iran. Three decades later, there's believed to be over 1 million. More Iranians have become Christian in the last two decades than in the last 13 centuries. Do you know where the second fastest growing church is according to Operation World? Afghanistan. Do you know how Afghans have been primarily reached? By the Iranians. The church thrives in the place, in the most places where it's persecuted the most. But even more so, in our day, in our context, the church has been pushed to the margins And in many ways, that can be a good thing. You often hear the church is on decline in America, but what actually most often is happening is you're just seeing nominalism fall off. You think about like having a nice, juicy, glorious steak, right? And it has all the fat around the edges. What do you do? You cut off the fat, right? Because you want the good part, right? You want the, the real deal, you know, unless you're some weirdo who likes, I don't know about you, who likes the fat and eats the fat kind of thing. But in a similar way, when it comes to Christianity, when we experience persecution or being pushed to the margins of society, you will see nominalism or cultural Christianity fall off, right? Marginal living manifests this. So often we hear about Christianity fading in our society. This is what's happening. And so guys, this is why, this is exactly why we're going to spend 10 wonderful weeks together in the book of Daniel this fall. And we're going to see, hopefully, how we can faithfully live life as Christians at the margins of society. We want to be a people who faithfully and vibrantly live for our risen King and Savior here in East County. Uh, Before we dive in, I'm just going to warn you, this will be a little bit longer of a message than normal because we're diving into an entire book and an entire chapter today. And so there's a few things I need to say about this book to give us sort of an interpretive context before we dive in. Uh, First and foremost, uh, we should understand that Daniel was most likely written by Daniel, okay? uh, Later in the book, it says, I saw, you know, he's prophesying later in the book. So most likely Daniel wrote this book and it covers a period of time from 607 B.C., to about 537 BC. So it spans about 70 years of Daniel's life. Most importantly though, 
This is set in the time period of Israel's exile into Babylon. And this is one of the main themes of the entire book, which raises the important question, what does it look like for God's people, for followers of Jesus in our context, to live somewhere that's not our home? And I don't mean like vacation, like I'm in you know, Hawaii. How do I live in Hawaii? It's not my home. You know, that kind of thing, right? I mean, as spiritual exiles, we're, we're living somewhere that doesn't have the same worldview, the same values. We're not living into the same story. So what does it look like to live somewhere that's not our home? That's the primary message of the book because that's what God's people are going through. And this book is pretty complex. It's, it's pretty uh, amazing in so many ways. And something interesting about this is that in the Hebrew Bible, you'll find the book of Daniel in the historical narrative section, but in your English Bible, you'll find it in prophetic literature. There's a reason for that, because the first six chapters of the book of Daniel are historical narrative, and the last six are prophetic literature, right? Apocalyptic, maybe you would say, right? You see these four visions from Daniel. So you're probably familiar with some of these stories, like Daniel in the lion's den or the fiery furnace, and then you get to chapter seven, and you kind of just move on, right? You're like, I don't know what this means. And so um, when we get to that part, I'm going to make Mike preach all those messages. I haven't told him this yet, but he can answer every single one of your questions in detail, okay? But really, if we want to sum up this book, I think David Helm does a good job in some broad strokes. He says in the first six chapters of Daniel, they can be summed up in saying, at home in Babylon, at home in Babylon. And the last six could be summarized by saying, getting home from Babylon, getting home from Babylon. So that's important for us to realize what's going on, but I say even more so I want to point out just an important interpretive context for us. I want to clarify something that I think if we're not careful, we can easily uh, not notice this and get off track. Uh, That is that Daniel is a very relevant book for our lives, and it's actually always been relevant for every single generation. Uh, Furthermore, the parallels between Israel living in Babylon should not be compared in our minds to a view that maybe some people would hold. Uh, Maybe maybe you would hold this in this room. I don't don't know. Uh, but, But many of you might find yourself comparing Israel to the United States. And so the thinking goes, Daniel and Israel is like former America that seems to be being taken over by Babylon or progressives, okay? Now, the comparison made is not Israel to America. I just want to say that very clearly, okay? Our comparison that we're supposed to be making here is Israel or God's people to the church, right? That's the comparison. People scattered all over this world, people from every tribe and tongue and nation. And this is important for us to keep in mind because there's something really significant going on in the book of Daniel, the scriptures from beginning of its pages talk about these sort of two kingdoms idea. From the moment of the fall, when you see the serpent deceive um, Adam and Eve, you see this great promise that there will be a seed from the serpent and there will be a seed from the woman. And they will have enmity between each other. And you see this played out throughout the pages of the Bible. You get to Genesis chapter 11 and the Tower of Babel where all these people have one language and they build this tower trying to reach heaven and make a name for themselves. Right? And what does God do? He, he confuses their language and he scatters them. And it's in Genesis 11 that we see the beginning of this nation of Babylon. Right? This is the place where Babylon finds its beginnings primarily. And from that moment forward, you'll see Babylon as a literal nation. But it's also representative of the city of the world. It's, it's a representation word or nation of the, the world, right? Worldliness. 
So St. Augustine famously wrote a book called The City of God, and then he talks about this idea that there is a city of man, which you could say is Babylon, and there's a city of God. It's Zion. It's God's people. In this thread, you'll see it find its ultimate fulfillment in the pages of Revelation. Uh, This is a really important biblical worldview to have as we read Daniel, because the setting is the exile of Israel and Babylon, and so we, even as Christians, the New Testament talks about us as being spiritual exiles on this earth. We are sojourners and strangers waiting for our heavenly home. So Peter writes to those who are elect exiles in the dispersion, right? We are called elect exiles who are Christians. Later on, he says, Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles, right, to abstain from the passions of the flesh. So this is really important interpretively that we have this in mind, that that the relationship between Daniel and Israel and Babylon and us as Christians and the world, okay? So, so how do we live well at the margins? There's four things, four movements that we see in our passage. It should be on the screen for you. The first is this. In verses 1 through 2, we see that we are here on purpose. Verses 3 through 7, that Babylon has a purpose. 8 through 16, that we need to know our purpose. And 17 through 24, that God is faithful to carry out his purpose. So let's try to work through this as best as we can. Let's look at verses 1 through 2. In the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. And the Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand with some of the vessels of the house of God. And he brought them to the land of Shinar, to the house of God, and placed the vessels in the treasury of his God. So we see here that Nebuchadnezzar is the king of Babylon. He's coming to Jerusalem, which is the capital city in Judah, and he's besieged it. If you want to read about that, that story is told in 2 Kings chapters 24 and 25. So this is 605 BC, uh, right after Nebuchadnezzar has defeated the Egyptians, and now he's moved on to Judah. Jehoiakim, he's the king of Judah. He's now in the hands of Nebuchadnezzar. Not only that some of the vessels, even of the house of God, have been taken and they've been put into the places of worship, into these pagan places of worship. Right? So even God's sacred things. So don't miss this here. This would have been devastating to people in Judah. I mean, you could even imagine them wondering things like, where are you, God? Right? How, how could you possibly let this, this happen? But we see here in this text more going on than simply meets the eye. It kind of be said that there's two ways to see history, one through the eyes of God and one through the eyes of man. Because look in verse 2, what does it say? The Lord gave Jehoiakim king of Judah, into his hand. So from a purely human perspective, it looks like Nebuchadnezzar came in and he had the power, so he overran Jerusalem and he overtook the nation and the king. But on the other hand, we see that Nebuchadnezzar was conquered only because God himself gave Jehoiakim and the city into his hand. So God is sovereign over this whole thing. God is over Babylon. There is a God in Babylon. God promised this would happen. He promised them if they were unfaithful to him, Leviticus 26, that he would exile them. Right In the Bible, we read then of God's patience again and again and again and again. And then finally now, God is faithful to that promise, that he would exile them. To scatter them among the nations. So as we imagine the people who first had Daniel land in their lap, we must understand that God really wants them to know that he was not absent on that dark day in Jerusalem, that they are here on purpose. 
We must also see that God is not absent for us today. He's not absent in your life, right? God was not powerless at that time, and he is not powerless now. So this story is meant to encourage God's people that that God in his infinite wisdom, in his infinite plan, has something for us in our sufferings. He doesn't waste our moments, no matter how good or how bad they are, to our eyes. There's another thing that these verses reveal to us very naturally, and that is that kingdoms rise and fall. Kingdoms rise and fall, but God is always enthroned over all kingdoms. We're going to see this a lot in Daniel. All kingdoms rise and fall. I mean, just read history, right? Egypt rose and fell. Israel rose and fell. Babylon rises and it'll fall. Greece rises and falls. Right? Rome rises and falls. The United States, you guys, has risen and it too will fall. Somehow, every nation that has ever existed in the world and has been at the top of power and influence thinks that it will never happen to them. And at least we as Americans don't think it will happen to us. And honestly, as Americans, it makes sense why it's hard for us to wrap our minds around because all of us who've lived in America have lived in America during the time where we've been at the top, right, in power and influence. So it's hard to imagine that not being the case. It's sort of like if you're... 11 years of age or younger, and you're a Seahawks fan. Like, all you've ever known is the Seahawks as a good football team, okay? Right? They've risen. And so every year, you're like, they're going to be good. We, we got a shot, you know? All you got to do is ask your dad or mom, and they'll tell you there was a time where it was dark, you know? Okay? And I, I'm, I wish we could go back to those days. It will, Seahawks fans, you will fall, okay? You will fall again, I promise. Okay? We, we get this. It's hard for our minds to get, this, get around this. We've only experienced things a certain way. But this is just as true for us who live in the U.S. It's all we've ever known. We're not unique in history. I don't say that to scare us, but I say it to hopefully try and untether our hopes from the nation that we live in. If our hopes are mainly tethered to our nation's prosperity and power, friends, that's not where our hope is to be found. We need God to be our hope and hold everything else loosely. I love the story years ago where Corey Ten Boom, who survived the Holocaust, came to hear Chuck Swindoll preach. And after the service, she approached him and she grabbed Chuck Swindoll's hands and opened them gently. And she looked into his eyes and said, hold everything in your hands like this. Otherwise, it hurts when God pries your fingers open. Guys, you'll notice in our passage, it says, God gave. It's going to say it two more times. This is, the, this is the theme. God gave, God gave, God gave. The writer wants that phrase to ring in our ears. God gave. The Lord in his sovereign power is at work. In this case, he gave them over to another nation. But he is still at work. So we need to hold our hands like this. Right, Because God gives and God takes away, and it might not be always what we want. But secondly, we also see Babylon has a purpose. Look in verse 3. The king commanded Ashpenaz, his chief eunuch, to bring some of the people of Israel, both of the royal family and of the nobility, youths without blemish, of good appearance, and skillful in all wisdom, endowed with knowledge, understanding, learning, 
and competent to stand in the king's palace and to teach them the literature and language of the Chaldeans. The king assigned them a daily portion of the food that the king ate and of the wine that he drank. They were to be educated for three years, and at the end of that time, they were to stand before the king. Among these were Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, the tribe of Judah, and the chief of the eunuchs gave them names. Daniel he called Belteshazzar, Hananiah he called Shadrach, Mishael he called Meshach, and Azariah he called Abednego. Babylon conquers, what do they do? They literally take the best, the brightest, and even the most handsome, right? Who would have been teenagers, and they take them away from their families, take them away from their places of worship, and they bring them to Babylon. And what's their intention? Look at verse 4. To teach them the literature and the language of the Chaldeans, which is just another name for Babylonians. They want to take the best of the Jewish people and indoctrinate them. For King Nebuchadnezzar, this was a strategic decision. I mean, rather than just send someone of his own people to go and govern a people and hope to keep them in line or something like that, he's going to have people come and stand in his court, people that he will indoctrinate, and they can help him better govern those regions. The best and the brightest of God's people are going to be well-versed in the language of Babylon, in the worldview of Babylon. And they're going to be immersed in the food and culture of that kingdom. The goal, do you see it, is to fully assimilate them. And look, they even changed their names. That's a big deal, right? In this day and age, names really mattered. It was of greatest importance. This is, this is not the case for us. I mean, there's some strange names being named, you know, kids being named names these days, right? I mean, I even just looked it up just for fun. Uh, in 2017, uh, there was an article that talked about some of these names where kids were being named after brands, right? 141 kids that year were named after Tesla, right? Or Fanta, the orange soda drink, right? 24 girls named Fanta, right? 12 girls and six boys were named ESPN, okay? I wish I was joking. I imagine it's called ESPN or something, but it's ESPN, just all caps kind of thing, right? We had 24 boys that year named Lucifer. Yeesh, right? Riot, arson, yo-yo, Jezebel, paw, like your animal has, baby boy, baby girl, moo, like what a cow says, and five girls were even named Godiva, so somebody loves chocolate, I guess. Right, but we, we live... In different times, right? That's just an example. But to the Hebrews, your name was connected to your identity, right? Now we are introduced to, to four of these young people here, and all their names are connected to their God, right? So every time they hear their own name, what would happen? They would be reminded of their God. All their names mean God is this, right? So just for example, Daniel in Hebrew is God is my judge. So every time he hears the word Daniel, he's hearing this idea that God is my judge. This is part of my identity. What's his name changed to? Belteshazzar, which means what? Bel, B-E-L, which was a, a Babylonian god. Bel will protect. Interesting. And this is the case for all these names. Do you see how renaming them was geared to change their heart and mind? Their goal is to move their hearts and minds away from their god. We see tremendous pressure here to conform to a false worldview. That they're going to think like Babylonians. Now, remember, one of the main themes of this book isn't about the conflict mainly just between Israel and Babylon, but really the people of God and the people of the world, the city of God and the city of man. And so it's important for us to be sober. It's important for us to realize in the same way, the world around us, anything that is not of God, that's not promoting a biblical worldview and value, 
It's vying for our own attention, but not just our attention, you guys, but our conformity. I mean, universities and schools, both public and even private, seek to conform students in our day. This is not to say that you shouldn't go to public school. Full disclosure, my kids go to public school. But we can't be naive. That's why parenting is so important, right? We know this. When you go to college, no matter where you go, the university that you attend has a plan for your life. Could be a good one. Or could be one that's opposed to God. More so, just the, the things we consume, the media we consume, the articles we read, the feeds we scroll through, they're consistently promoting a worldview and ideas of how to think. Right? Sometimes that could be to think like the ways of God or to think more like, in our context here, Babylonians. Right? There's many worldviews promoted regularly. Some could even be disguised as Christian that are conforming you into a certain kind of person. They're reshaping the way you see yourself, your identity. You just think of worldviews like the survival of the fittest. Even Christians can adopt this mentality that says things like, God helps those who help themselves. Similar thing. There's critical theory that it seems everyone's talking about that breaks everyone down and into, into either oppressors or oppressed people. You're supposed to see yourself as one or the other. There's critical views as well that tell you to elevate your uh, gender, your ethnicity, right? To the highest position of how you see yourself instead of seeing yourself first and foremost as united to Christ and a child of God. There are worldviews that are flavored with new ageism or psychology theory and practice or self-help and positive thinking. Christian, that can be, can be flavored even in Christianity under it's about you becoming a better you. That's what your Christianity is for. And there's even political nationalism worldviews that vary by the party, which tells you that your hope is in a government system or recovery of a system. You, you can think of every religious worldview out there and add them to the list, from Mormonism to Islam, you name it. The point is not to tackle the worldviews, but to acknowledge there is a plethora of things vying for conformity in our lives. We mustn't think this is new, this has always been the case. So how do we know what is of God and what is not of God? We study the real thing. Right? It's like the age-old thing, how do you recognize a fake dollar bill? You study the real thing. You can, you can see what is the fake. Right? Do you see this? As Babylon is, is not just a place. It's everywhere. It's in Portland, Gresham, Mississippi, Idaho, Montana, where I was raised. And if we're not careful, it'll find its own place in our heart and mind. That's what these guys are. They're, they're isolated from their families. They're places of worship seeking to be conformed. And then we see third thing, though, that we need to know our purpose then. Look at verses 8 and 9. Daniel resolved that he would not defile himself with the king's food or with the wine that he drank. Therefore, he asked the chief of the eunuchs to allow him not to defile himself. And God gave, that's our second gave, Daniel, favor and compassion in the sight of the chief of the eunuchs. So Daniel resolves not to do something. What is that? Well, he doesn't want to defile himself with the food and the wine of the king. So to defile yourself would be to be made unclean or unholy in the eyes of God. Now, why in the world would Daniel think that eating the food and the wine of the king would defile him? Do you guys know? I don't either, right? Literally nobody knows. Okay, uh, you can read every single commentator in the world. They all have some good ideas, right? But literally everyone's like, who knows? We, we kind of don't know. I mean, some might say something like, maybe it's Daniel's commitment to Old Testament dietary laws. Maybe that's it. But dietary laws didn't prohibit wine. 
So it doesn't really work, right? It may have been the food that, was, that he was uh, not wanting to defile himself with was offered to idols, right? Which would be great for him not to take that, right? But likely the vegetables could have been offered as well. So it doesn't really explain that. It may have been that if he knew he drank the king's wine, the food, and he was successful, that it would be attributed to the fact that he was successful because of King Nebuchadnezzar. And maybe his not bowing the knee here meant that if he was successful, if he succeeded, right, then the glory wouldn't be Nebuchadnezzar's, but it would be God's. It could be all those, could be others. It kind of doesn't really matter. The point is that Daniel is sure that he could not receive the food and wine, and he was resolved not to do it. This is not a small or easy decision, guys. There could have been repercussions here. I mean, this could have been an insult to the king, could be really held against Daniel. Plus, think about it, Daniel's a teenager. This isn't dorm food, right? This is like king food. I mean, this is like top of the line, best food in the land, and a teenage boy is like, I will eat vegetables, okay? Think about that. Come on. So Daniel resolves to not conform here, but also remember what he didn't resolve to resist. He didn't resolve to resist the education of a foreign nation. He didn't resist learning the language. He didn't even refuse to be called the name of a foreign god. So he's not refusing everything, but there has come a time and place where he knows a line needs to be drawn and he's not going to cross it. See that? So see his resolve, but also see how he went about this. He didn't go on a hunger strike. He didn't start an uprising. He didn't, you know, post his outrage somehow, somewhere, right? He comes up with a plan. He goes to the chief of eunuchs who was over this whole program, and he asked that he would not have to defile himself. So what did God give? That was the second giving, right? He gave him favor and compassion. See that? It came upon him from this chief. But notice what happens in verse 10. This chief eunuch refuses. Do you notice that? He says, basically, I'll lose my head. Because if you don't look good, you're not being fed well, that's on me. So I may like you. You might have favor in my eyes, but I won't agree to this. So what does Daniel do? Does he give up? No, he still has resolve. So he goes to the steward, who's under the chief eunuch, but directly over Daniel. And he proposes this test. He goes, hey, let's do a test. Ten days, I'm going to become a vegan. Right? Only vegetables and only water. And after 10 days, right, if we're still healthy, let's just keep doing it. The guy agrees to this test, right? So Daniel becomes a vegan. And look in verse 15. I propose to you this is the greatest miracle in the entire book of Daniel, okay? Verse 15, at the end of 10 days, it was seen that they were in better appearance and fatter in flesh than everybody else. He became vegan, just water and vegetables, and he got chunky, right? Think about this. Daniel and lion's in fiery furnace, all those things. No, this is, this is it, right? Greatest miracle in Daniel, right? So what happens? They get to keep eating this way. They don't have to eat the king's food or drink the wine. So what are we to see here, though, is how Daniel goes about his resolved nonconformity. He's respectful to authorities. He's also committed. He's courteous, but he is courageous. I think we can learn a lot here from this chapter. This is not often the tone of Christians in America around issues where we have disagreements. Now, now Daniel receives this favor, and we must remember where he got it. Remember verse 9, he got it from God. 
So we see the Lord giving. The Lord will give you what you need. Right? Even favor with those who don't trust in God. The God you trust in, guys, he can move the hearts and minds of people who don't know him, believe in him, or follow him. He can do that. He can give you favor in the eyes of people who don't even know him. So you don't have to be afraid. You don't have to be unrighteously angry or fearful about environments that you are in or face here in our city. God gives. He moves hearts and hands. So feel comfortable then as you and I live at the margins. But also notice, what did this favor result in? Did Daniel and his friends become free and get to go home? No. Was Nebuchadnezzar overthrown and Daniel became the king? No. Favor was not deliverance from their captivity, but favor within their captivity. See, God can rescue and God sometimes does rescue, but most often he gives sustaining strength and grace through our circumstances that we need to be delivered from. So in our situations, guys, this is our prayer. This should be our prayer. God, give us favor in this relationship. God, give them favor in this. God, I trust that you can move the hearts of other people, even who are opposed to you. This text is so helpful, you guys, and it's so important for us to see how he goes about this. Essentially, how are we to live in this world as Christians? So I want to look at a few things really here that are going to practically help us. Look, this is so critical. Think about this. How did they go about this? One option was this. One thing is they, they faced is that they could completely withdraw. How do you respond here in this world of Babylon now? They could completely withdraw. They wouldn't have anything to do with this education. They wouldn't accept these names. And that maybe would have cost them their life, but they could have done that. Right? We've seen this withdrawn, this withdrawal within Christianity even in our own world. Right? You and I can withdraw so much that it's even possible that you and I don't even have any real relationships with anybody who doesn't know Christ. You can withdraw as a, as a Christian in our world, in Gresham, and not even know people who don't know Christ. So some Christians draw lots of lines and withdraw into Christian bubbles or ghettos even. And maybe that's your experience. There can be a strong draw right now in our culture that is constantly shifting where we end up craving safety and protection. So we go, I'm just going to pull back from everything. I'm going to build my own bubble. The other option they had is completely assimilate. Right? This is when God's people embrace everything in the culture. The worldview, the education, the cultural entertainment, and you do so without any thought to what it's doing to you. In this view, instead of a crazy amount of lines that you would draw, right, there's essentially no lines being drawn. Where you don't separate yourself from the culture, we become indistinguishable from the culture. And we face this very temptation even now today. Right? Complete assimilation. You maybe even know friends who are Christians who you're seeing do this sort of thing. But look what they do. And this is our call here. In Daniel and his friends, we see a godly resolve and engagement. They didn't draw a line around everything, but they didn't embrace everything either. They're trying to think and engage critically without mindless acceptance or without blanket rejection. 
They aren't running away. They aren't fully assimilating. They're engaged with the truth. This is what we at GBC want to do. This is who we want to be. This is who we are. We don't withdraw. We don't assimilate. But with godly resolve, we lovingly engage. This is us. It's not easy, though. We will always feel pressure from either side. But this this is straight out of the mouth even of Jesus. Think about his words in his great high priestly prayer before he goes and gets crucified. John 17, I do not ask that you take them, his disciples, out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world. Just as I am not of the world. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. So the Bible you hold in your lap, right? As you sent them into the world, so I have sent them into the world. We are sent into the world by Jesus to live distinctly in the world, engaged for Jesus by the power of the gospel. We're not to withdraw. We're not to assimilate. I mean, even even Israel had the same sort of idea given to them by the prophet Jeremiah. You've heard this before. should be on the screen. Uh, But Jeremiah 29 says, Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, to all the exiles whom I have sent into exile. There's that God's sovereignty again. From Jerusalem to Babylon. What does he tell them to do? Build houses, live in them, plant gardens, eat their produce, take wives, have sons and daughters, take wives for your sons, give your daughters in marriage, that they may bear sons and daughters, multiply there, do not decrease, but seek the welfare of the city. What city? Babylon, where I have sent you into exile, and pray to the Lord on its behalf, for in its welfare you will find welfare. Right? This is the same call for us. We want to pray for our city. That's what we're doing here even on Sunday nights. That's why we gather corporately to pray the second Monday of the month, every every month, right? We want to seek the flourishing and welfare of East County. We want to pray for righteousness and grace and humility to be found here. We want to see the gospel move and transform lives. So we pray the same thing. So Daniel said yes to many things. He even went into government, right, of a pagan nation. But he also said no. And he drew a line he wouldn't cross. There are ways to cooperate, you guys, with our society. And there are ways that we shouldn't cooperate. So maybe a helpful evaluative question would be to ask, do I never cooperate with our culture? Or do I always cooperate with the culture? Do you draw tons of lines? Or do you draw no lines? Depending on how you answer that, you either are compromising through assimilation or you're compromising through separation. Where do you need to draw a line? Where do you need to erase a line that Jesus hasn't drawn and you have? How can we engage our city with the gospel? The final thing we see here is in verses 17 to 21, and we see that God is faithful to carry out his purpose. So that we are here on purpose, that Babylon has a purpose, that we need to know our purpose. And that God is faithful to carry out his. 17, as for these four youths, God gave, that's our third gave. He gave them learning and skill in all literature and wisdom. And Daniel had understanding in all visions and dreams. At the end of the time when the king had commanded that they should be brought in, the chief of the eunuchs brought them in before Nebuchadnezzar. And the king spoke with them. And among all of them, none was found like Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. Therefore, this is the big climax, conclusion of this whole story. Therefore, they stood before the king. 
And in every matter of wisdom and understanding about which the king inquired of them, he found them ten times better than all the magicians and enchanters that were in all his kingdom. And Daniel was there until the first year of King Cyrus. So we see God gave them what? Fruitfulness. He gave them everything they needed. They passed the test. Right? They got the diploma. Right? And they were exceptional. They're given stature and influence in this government that just destroyed their own people. Why? Because God gave them the fruitfulness. Do you see? God gives grace and fruitfulness to those who trust in him, who abide in him. But then look down at there, verse 21. It says, he was there until the first year of King Cyrus. Why this? Right? Why this? Well, it shows us that God sustained Daniel for decades of service because King Cyrus was the king of Persia who came in and began reigning in 539 BC. It was, it was that guy who conquered the Babylonians and sent the Israelites back home. So this is telling you right away that for nearly 70 years, Daniel served, right? He'd be almost over the age of 80, right? So right now he's a teen. You're kind of having the lead buried here. You're like, well, what's going to happen to Daniel? Oh, he's, he lives, you know? It's like watching a movie and you're like, what's going to happen? And if someone tells you like, oh, they don't worry, they, they survive, it's kind of, oh, okay, it kind of ruins it a little bit, right? But, but it's important for us to see this here. Right? God was faithful, and Daniel was faithful. Daniel outlasted Nebuchadnezzar, and you and I will outlast other people who lead in our country. God gave Daniel and his friends all they needed in knowledge, learning, and skill so that they were ten times better. That, that's a figure basically to signal for us that God did this. If they're ten times better, oh, God did it. Right? That's the conclusion here. Do you see, we don't leave here, guys, this week in fear. And we don't leave here with heavy burdens. Jesus says, come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, I will give you rest. I will take your burdens. We don't leave here with heavy burdens. Why, though? Why? Well, it's God who is faithful. And it's God who is with his people. And it's God who carried out this whole thing. How, how do we do this? How do we not leave heavy burdened? Well, the huge key is this. We need to never forget and always remember that at one point, guys, our hearts and our hopes, they were tethered to this world. Right? We found our hopes tethered to the city of man. But guess what? Praise God that he didn't draw a line. The line was there, but he didn't draw it and go, withdraw. That's not who our God is. Not at all. Right? What did God do? He drew near. He crossed the line, didn't he? Right? He drew near, and he drew nearer than you and I could ever dare to dream. And what did he do? He gave. We see God gave, he gave, he gave. And then we all hear that verse ring in our ears, right? God loved the world, so he gave. He gave Jesus, his only son, 
so that whoever was in the city of man, if they believed in him, they would not perish, but they would have a new home, everlasting life. God gave his son. You read in Isaiah 53, 8, it says, by oppression and judgment, Jesus was taken away. He was exiled. That's that language. And for his generation who considered that he was what? Cut off from the land of the living, right? Stricken for the transgression of my people. He was exiled in a way that you and I never will be. Right? He was exiled under our rightful judgment so that we would be a part of the people of God. I mean, think about this whole narrative again. Verse 19 says what? Therefore, they stood before the king. That was the big hope, right? Verse 5, after these three years, they would stand before the king. Well, they stood before the king. Why did they do it? Because God did it. God sustained them. God gave. Right? And guys, you and I know that although you might not stand before King Nebuchadnezzar, there is a king that you and I will all stand before one day. And his name is Jesus, and he is the lion and the lamb. And all who trust in him will endure. That's why we have the great promises from Philippians that he who began a good work in you will see it to completion of the day of Christ Jesus. Later on, Paul says, God will supply every need of yours according to his riches in Christ Jesus. That's why Peter says in his second letter, his divine power has granted to us all things for life and godliness. And that's why when you read Revelation and you get to chapter 7, what do you see? You see all those who God saw to completion, who endured. And what are they doing? They're standing before the throne. They're standing before the king. People from every tribe, tongue, and nation. And how are you get there? Because God gave. Guys, how do I live today? If I separate, if I withdraw, I'm not believing the gospel because the gospel says God came near and he gave. If I assimilate, I'm not believing the gospel because Jesus drew near and he didn't assimilate and he gave his life. But if I engage with the gospel, now we're getting it. Now we're getting it. You are here on purpose for a purpose, for God's purpose. And Babylon has a purpose. But don't sweat. There's a God in Babylon. Father, I do pray tonight as we begin to explore this incredible book that you would open our eyes to behold our great Savior and King Jesus, that we would see your generosity in giving him to us that we now are a part of a kingdom that cannot be shaken. God, would you untether our hopes in this world and completely tether our hopes to him? This is our great hope and prayer tonight, Lord. We can't do this on our own, but we see your generous hand here in these pages, and so we ask you, God, to generously do a work in our hearts and in every believer's heart here in East County and all over the world. God, we ask you, to continue to be at work in us, that we would grow more and more in the image of your Son. Pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. <laughs>